This morning we're going to look at Psalm 17, and what we have in Psalm 17, if you look at the, ver- the, the prescript to Psalm 17, it's labeled a prayer of David. Uh, David's going to essentially pour out his concerns to God, and unfortunately for me and for you, he doesn't do this with a thesis statement and then build you know, t- verse 1 and then verse 2 and verse 3 till he proves his thesis statement. Uh, for lack of a better uh, analogy, David just kind of regurgitates all of his emotions, just blurts them out on the page for us. So as we go through this psalm, we're going to see David's dump of all his emotions, but in doing that, David's going to give us a window into the thoughts that he's thinking about himself and about others and about God. So what we have from David is an emotional outpouring due to present difficulties, and the reason the difficulties are so great, the reason they, they rise to this level is because of, is because of David's theology. So let me put it this way. David's emotions, the things that he's going to say, are informed by his theology, his view of God, who he is, and what God is doing. So in this psalm, we'll see what David thinks of God and what David thinks of himself and of those who are out to get him. And in doing this, theology is driving David's emotions. Now, for those of you uh, who self-identify as emotional or passionate, uh, that's good. (laughs) But theology always drives our emotions. You say, what do you mean? So... If you're angry, if, you're, if, you're, if you blow up, can I ask you, what does that reveal about your view of God? If you're anxious, if you're in despair about present situations, what does that reveal about what you think of God? So good theology will drive good emotions, <laughs> and bad theology will drive bad emotions. So what we see here in Psalm 17 is David pouring out his heart before God, and what we're gleaning from that is what David thinks about God. So there's three areas that David is that we're going to look at that David expresses in this psalm, and they're going to be the three points of the sermon here. So number one is David's view of his own innocence. Number two is David's view of his enemy's wickedness, and number three is David's view of God's vindication. So, David's view of his innocence. David's view of his innocence. So, look at the language of Psalm 17, or when we look at the language of Psalm 17. Probably the first thing that you notice are those first five verses. David's strong defense of his own innocence. Verse 1, David uses the word, or these words, a just cause. That's a righteous cause. He he talks about lips free of deceit. Verse 2, David's calling on God to declare to him, Declare him to be in the right. Now, I don't think David's playing at hyperbole. He's not using exaggeration for effect here. David truly believes he's speaking the truth. He believes his position is righteous and God will agree with him. So if that's not bold enough, if verses 1 and 2 aren't bold enough, David ratchets up the rhetoric here in verse 3 through 5. Here's descriptions in verses 3 through 5. Descriptions of his own speech, a mouth that will not transgress. Descriptions of his conduct. He's avoided the way of the violent. He's held fast to your paths. Descriptions of his motives. He's 
You've tried my heart. You've visited me by night. You've tested me and you found nothing. David claims to be innocent of any wrong in these areas. And in fact, he asserts that God has tried him and tested him. And these aren't flippant words to David, tried and tested. These terms echo the idea of refining ore, heating up this metal, and then scraping off the impurities off the top of it. Tested is like looking at a vessel, holding it up and scrutinizing it, examining it closely to see if there's any defect in that vessel. David is saying that God has carefully inspected him, and God did not find any wrong. Now, before we go any further, you're probably asking this question, how in the world... How in the world can David claim to be innocent? I mean, is David claiming sinlessness? So just so we're both on the same page, this is the same David who had Uriah killed and committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, we could try to explain that away by saying, well, maybe he committed those sins after he wrote this psalm, so maybe this is like before the big sins, and he just says, well, I'm innocent. But I don't think so. If we look back at Psalm 14, 2 and 3, David also wrote, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So David knows that there's no one who is truly innocent. So when we read these verses at first pass, We could jump on our theological high horse and state no one's righteous before God. No one can claim to be innocent. Every person's a sinner, transgressor, rebel, enemy of God. Romans 3 tells us this. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because we have read the New Testament and we think think in terms of righteousness for salvation, it's hard to think of anyone, let alone David, claiming to be innocent. However, We have to distinguish between the idea of what I would say is truly innocent or absolute innocence and the idea, that sinlessness idea, and the claim that David is making. So claiming to be sinless encompasses not just one moment, but all of life's actions, thoughts, words, and deeds. And in that sense, that's to claim that would be to claim absolute innocence. But David's not claiming absolute innocence. He's not claiming he's never committed a transgression before God. However, David is claiming that in this specific situation, in this moment in time, that he is innocent. He's not guilty of any wrongdoing. He's innocent in this situation. This is the same kind of thing that we saw back in Psalm 15 when, he, when David wrote, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent and who shall dwell on your holy hill? So initially, our answer would be no one. No one's righteous. No one is holy. It's impossible for anyone to dwell with God. But two weeks ago, Pastor Nate helped us to unpack verses 2 through 5 of Psalm 15, and it's not about earning our salvation. It's about living in fellowship with God, or what what we talked about, progressive sanctification. David was writing here in the same idea, the same vein of idea in Psalm 17. His contention isn't is that he's currently walking in fellowship with God. 
If you look at the language in Psalm 17, it dovetails well with Psalm 15.2. Psalm 15.2 says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Now, we don't know the exact situation that David is facing in Psalm 17. Uh, We don't have any historical background, but David is asserting that in this situation, he's innocent, that he's walking in fellowship with God. All right, so if he is walking in fellowship with God, then we got to ask the question, why does this matter to David? Well, remember, David's emotions, David's emotions are being driven by his theology. So what emotions are we picking up? Verse 1, he's pleading to God. He's pleading to God to hear him because something's not right. He's in distress because his present difficulties do not match what he knows about who God is and what God does. So let's take a quick survey through the Psalms previous to Psalm 17 to catch a flavor of what is driving David's theology. Why does it matter that David is walking in fellowship with God and yet his, he's in present difficulties? What do, we, what do we know from Psalm 16? The person who chooses Yahweh or chooses God receives the benefits of God's favor. Psalm 15, the person walking in fellowship with God will enjoy God's presence. Psalm 13, trusting God's covenant, trust, trusting in God's covenant love leads to salvation and favor. Psalm 11, God's righteous judgments protect the righteous. We, we can go all the way back, and we're not going to go through all the Psalms, all the way back to Psalm 1, but Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers." What does David know about who God is and what God does that causes him to cry out in distress? David knows God shows favor to people who love God and who follow him. It's not a difficult concept. David has observed God's workings, and those works have revealed God's character. God rewards those who walk in fellowship with him. Verse 7 of of Psalm 17 alludes to God's miraculous interventions in Israel's history. And this is what David's praying for, that God would miraculously show up. Things like the plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the battle of Jericho, the deliverance through Othniel, Ehud, Gideon, Samson. David has even experienced this miraculous showing up of God in his own life. When? When he defeated Goliath. But... David's walking in fellowship with God, and his present circumstances are not matching what he knows to be true of God. And so he's crying out in distress. Instead of receiving the favor of God, instead of all that he's doing prospering, David is surrounded by, and he's at the mercy of his enemies, And so now we turn to David's view of his wicked enemies. So David's view of his enemy's wickedness. Starting in verses 9 through 14, David describes his enemies. So let's look at some of the terms he uses. Verse 9, they're wicked. They are deadly enemies. Look at their actions. 
Verse 9 again, they surround me. Verse 11, they've surrounded my steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. Verse 10, they close their hearts and they speak arrogantly. Then look at the metaphor he uses in verse 12. Like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. These are bad people intent on doing bad things. If we could say about David's claim to innocence that he was in fellowship with God, how, do, would, how would we describe these people? Well, flip back to Psalm 14, verse 1. Psalm 14, verse 1 describes these people well. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Another description we find in Psalm 2, 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These wicked people are God's enemies and they're David's enemies. There's a further description of these people. Look down at at verse 14 back in our, our Psalm 17. Psalm 17, verse 14, the first line there. This is his description of them. From men, by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. Now, there are some translation issues with this verse, but on the whole, I think that the ESV uh, gets this verse right. Who are David's wicked enemies? They're simply men. They're mortals. They're men who are concerned with only the things of this world. They're not concerned with God. They're not concerned with eternal matters. They're not concerned with righteousness or holiness. Their lives are demonstrating that they say in their heart, there is no God. And their only concern is to get all that they can in life. There's a further description in verse 14, but before we finish the verse, what does David know about God and his dealing with, dealings with the wicked that is driving his emotions? So, again, we just need to review some of the Psalms. Psalm 14.5, they are in great terror, speaking of those who are wicked. Psalm 12.3, may the Lord cut off flattering lips and the tongue that makes great boasts. Psalm 10.15, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. And all the way back, back to Psalm chapter 1, which sets the tone for the rest of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1, 4, and 5. But the wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. David expects God to punish his enemies. All right? That's what he expects. Let's finish verse 14 back in Psalm 17 then. What is it, what are, what's the final description of his enemies here? Verse 14, you, will fill, you fill their womb with treasure, they're satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. Now, surely <laughs> this should not be a description of the enemies of God. David's describing what he would normally associate with Blessings from God, descendants, and an inheritance. 
But, God, but David is saying that God is giving this to his wicked enemies. So here's the contrast. David, a righteous man, is surrounded by his predatory and ravenous enemies. And his enemies, who are wicked, are surrounded by lots of kids and lots of possessions. How's that fair? I said early on, David's emotions are informed by his theology. So no wonder, no wonder David is in distress He's pleading to God for, act, for action. Do you see the tension now between what David knows to be true about God, that God is righteous and rewards those who are in fellowship with him, and that he punishes those who are his enemies? He knows that to be true God, about God and what David is seeing going on in the world, that the righteous are in danger and the wicked are prospering. So, what is the answer? What is the answer? Number three, David's view of God's vindication. David's view of God's vindication. There is an answer. And through David's requests, we'll see the answer. Before we get to those, notice something that's just implicit. It's, it's, in the, it's the reason that the psalm is here to begin with. It's the fact that David takes this prayer to God. David has a question. <laughs> he has emotions that are roiling because he, he knows something to be true of God and yet his present circumstances don't fit what he knows to be true. The very fact that David is pouring out these emotions to God implies that David believes God hears and will answer. Psalm 17 is written in a moment of personal difficulty for David, but it's written to the one who's greater than all of the difficulty. So what is it David is asking for? What is it that David's asking for? First, we saw in verse 1, David's asking God to hear. So when we read language like this in the Psalms, uh, we don't need to worry that David has somehow forgotten God's omnipresence or his omniscience, that somehow God is absent or unaware, and now David has to grab God's attention and tell God something that he didn't know. No, David is calling on God to take special notice of him and his situation. He is asking God to demonstrate the care that he has promised. What promise? Well, David's writing in the context of covenants, specifically the Abrahamic covenant, the Sinai covenant, the Davidic covenant. These covenants, especially the one surrounding Sinai, bound God to Israel and Israel to God. And David is claiming the special care that God has promised to Israel and to him, David, as the king of Israel. This isn't arrogance, but assurance on David's part that the difficulties facing him will be shared by the God who has made and kept covenant with David. So he's asking God to hear. Second, David is asking for God's vindication. Now, I realize that's not a word that we usually use, vindication, so let me explain it this way. Let's say that you're charged with a crime, and you've heard the phrase, innocent until proven guilty. That's the assumption in our justice system. And the prosecution, their job is to prove, to prove that the defendant is actually guilty to get a conviction. However, if they can't prove that there's guilt, then the defendant is released. That's not vindication. 
saying we lack evidence to prove his guilt is not vindication. Vindication would be if, based on the evidence submitted to the judge, the judge declared that the defendant is innocent. That's vindication. We see this in mystery stories all the time. Suspicion rests on a character until they're finally proved to be at a different place at the time that the crime was committed. That's vindication. Vindication is proof that someone is innocent. So David doesn't want to just be, have his own affirmation of innocence. He wants God to step up and prove his innocence. But that also requires that, or David is asking in that moment that, that the vindication doesn't come from himself, it comes from God. This would be a great thing for David. Everyone would see that, his, that this situation is not because of his sin or because of some of his faults. Look at verse number 8. Look at verse number 8 of Psalm 17. If David is innocent, then he has every right to request special protection. There's two phrases in verse number 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye and hide me in the shadow of your wings that convey this special protection that David is requesting. The apple of, the, the apple of your eye can also be translated literally the pupil of the eye. You think of someone coming at you, trying to stick their finger into your eye. <laughs> what are you going to do? You're going to defend yourself. And David is asking that just as someone would defend their, their own pupil from attack, that God would defend him. The same thing with the shadow of your wings. This picture is the picture of a mother hen who, when she senses danger or a predator or a situation, she gathers all of her little chicks and she tucks them under her wings and she defends them. If anyone wants to get to the chicks, they have to go through the mother hen first. So in the same way, David's asking God to shelter him, to be his defender from those who are seeking to do him harm. If the fact is granted that David is innocent in this situation, then there's a corollary fact that should be granted, and that is that David should not be, or that David should be expecting all of God's special care for him. But there's, there's another thing that David is praying for, and it goes along with what he knows about God and what he knows to be his own situation as, as innocent. And that's the third thing here, is that David asked for God's righteous judgment on his wicked enemies. If David is innocent and God has declared him to be so, then the next logical step is for God to deal with the real wickedness in the situation, and that is to punish David's enemies. Now, that's not a petty request. This isn't David saying, these people hurt my feelings or I don't like them. He's not, this isn't some personal vendetta. David's theology is driving his emotions. These enemies are wicked. We looked at God's view of the wicked just a moment ago. And so, according to God's own standards, his actions should be judgment and condemnation because their actions were arrogance, ambushing, devouring, attacking David. So, there's one other reason that God should punish these people, 
And that is what we read at the end of verse 14. David pointed out that these enemies are receiving good things from God. They're receiving children and an inheritance. It's not incidental. It's not incidental to David's request for judgment on these people. The same people, the same people who are recipients of God's gifts are unthankful and ungrateful for them, refusing to worship God as God and instead living only for their pleasures in this life. Flip over to Psalm 73 real quick. Because Psalm 73 informs us of another moment when David David is, uh, or this is Asaph, sorry, but another psalmist is writing about what he sees going on in the world. I'll read an extended passage from Psalm 73, and then we'll look specifically at verses 17 through 19. But this is the way that Asaph starts verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Same thing that David's struggling with. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. The wicked, in verses 3 through 15, are getting away. They're getting away with their wickedness. They go about life and there's no judgment. But now let's look at verse 16, 17, 18, and 19. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly you, God, set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Asaph is struggling with the same thing that David is struggling with back in Psalm 17, and he ends up acknowledging, Asaph acknowledges, that God will execute judgment when he determines, not when Asaph demands it. The timing, the timing is up to the Lord. So go back to Psalm 17. David is innocent. He knows God hates wickedness and will judge the wicked, And so he is asking God, verse 13, to arise, to confront, to subdue the wicked, to deliver his soul by by God's sword. David's asking for judgment on the wicked. But then he leaves the timing up to God. Look at the final verse, verse 15. Verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. When will David receive vindication? 
Well, there's the phrase, when I awake. Now, there's, again, there's a lot of commentators who take these things differently, but one, there's a set of commentators who say that this is simply when David rises in the morning, when he's taken his rest, he's put his total trust in God's timing so that, so that he's not worried about the outcome. And on one hand, that's true, because David has placed all of his, his trust in God, he can rest and be at peace, truly, and wait for God's vindication. But there's also a greater sense of awake, even in the psalm. Notice verse 16, or sorry, notice verse 14. <laughs> verse 14, the wicked enjoy their children in inheritance when? They enjoy them in this life, in this life. But verse 17 says, but as for me. So in contrast to those who are only focused on this life, David says, but as for me, when I awake, not just in the morning, but when I awake from the sleep of death at the resurrection. David is confident of his vindication, and he leaves the timing up to God, even if, even if the timing of that vindication is after this life. So, what does ultimate vindication look like for David? What is David's hope? It's to see God's face. Ultimate vindication looks like experiencing the blessing of God by being in God's presence. It's what we saw David questioning in Psalm 15:1, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill? And what we heard David anticipating in Psalm 16:11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. For David, ultimate vindication is to be with God. And being confident of that vindication then God can leave, I mean David can leave the timing up to God. David is not demanding God work on his timeline. Now, on one hand, that's what Psalm 17 says. And if you're like me, I got to the end of it and I thought, well, I mean, I guess that's really helpful if I'm truly innocent in a situation. <laughs> and uh, I can't think of a situation that, has a, that is happening right now in my life in which this would be true. Now, there are, I realize in an audience like this, there are some of you who are literally in the midst of a situation in which you are facing distress and hardship, and it's not because of something you've done. And so, on one hand, take great courage that God will listen to you when you come to him that God knows and God will deliver vindication when, when he deems the appropriate time. But there is, in the, in the storyline of the Bible, in the grand scheme of what we, we find in the Scriptures, there is a connection which I think is worth talking about here. And it's, our, it's Psalm 17 and the connection with Christ. Now, Psalm 17 is not considered a messianic psalm in the sense of like Psalm 22 or 
some of the Psalms where we see a New Testament author quoting Psalm 17. But I want you to think through this Psalm just real quickly with me and think about the connection that we find with Jesus Christ. David characterizes himself as innocent. And we realize that this isn't a claim of absolute innocence, this is a claim of innocent in this situation. But for a moment, there is one, there is one who can pray the words of Psalm 17, 1 through 5, and it would be absolute innocence. Imagine Jesus praying these words as he knelt in the garden of Gethsemane, praying to the Father. Christ truly is the innocent one in Psalm 17, 1 through 5. The enemies of Jesus, wicked and bent on destroying him, are closing in on him. They will, in a short while, surround him, eager to kill him. These enemies, on the one hand, are those who will literally humiliate him, beat him, and nail him to the cross. But don't forget the description of God's enemies in Psalm 17, verse 14. The enemies that have received God's kindnesses, They have children. They have an inheritance. This is the description of God's common grace to all of mankind. We all receive God's grace from the first inhale of breath to the final exhale. And what do we do? We reject God. We seek our own way. And our sin is what sends Christ to the cross. We are his enemies. So Christ would be justified in requesting vindication from God. There's no reason for him to go to the cross. He committed no sin, which would require his death. His enemies should be destroyed for their wickedness. And Christ is confident of God's vindication, the Father's vindication. As in all of his life, Jesus willingly submitted to the Father's plan for his life. And Even in this, he submitted his desire and his right to vindication to the Father's plan and to the Father's timing. And here we have the beauty of the Father's divine plan coming to pass. Instead of Christ's vindication coming through the destruction of his enemies, Christ's vindication comes through the salvation of his enemies. The truly innocent one is killed by his enemies And this does not nullify or bring to nothing God's vindication. God's vindication of Jesus comes when Jesus rises from the dead, providing new life for all his enemies. Peter puts it this way in Acts 2.32 and following. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Vindication, Jesus in the presence of the Father, it's vindication and salvation. But there is a future vindication of Jesus. Philippians 2, 8 through 11. And Jesus, being found in human form, humbled, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue 
Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What you're seeing is vindication and judgment. Because either you will bow the knee now, while there is still time, and you'll do so willingly for salvation, or one day, one day, every knee will bow, unwillingly, and it will be for judgment. So be assured that the Father will vindicate His Son. So let me give you a couple of points of application. Number one, I mentioned this early on, but what are, what are our emotions revealing about our theology? When we pour out our emotions, or when our emotions regurgitate from us, what are our emotions telling us about what we truly believe about God and who He is and what He's doing? Are we, is our theology, is good theology leading our emotions, or our emotions leading our theology? Number two, when we're falsely accused, when we're truly innocent and yet experience, experiencing present difficulties, you can and you should cry out to God. God is with you. If you are in Christ, if you're born again, God has covenanted with you, and his love is faithful. So walk in faith with God. Trust God's promises, not your circumstances or your emotions that respond to your circumstances. Verse, uh, number three, application. Are you willing to submit ourselves? Are we willing to submit ourselves and our rights and our plans and ultimately our vindication to God's timing? Or are we demanding God work on our timetable? And finally, number four, can you see Psalm 17 in the life of Christ? Can you see it for your salvation? The innocent dying for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. We sing about it. What a great God we have. In the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, his vindication offers us salvation. So really the question is, have you trusted him. Will you do it today? Let's pray.